Righteousness. Right. What do you remember about, about righteousness? What did we say um, about it? Why are we talking about righteousness? It must be internalized. Good. Okay. Good. Right. Righteousness is not just, just externalisms. It, there's externals. It's not, not those things. But it primarily consists of internal realities, right? Working themselves out. Good. What's the connection between righteousness and Proverbs? Why are we even talking about this, this topic? Proverbs to give us wisdom, which leads us to righteousness. Excellent, excellent. Righteousness is the primary aim. Righteous living is the primary goal of wisdom. That's why God gives wisdom. And it's very clearly out in, in, in Proverbs. Good. Remember anything else we talked about last week? I was contrasted with the wickedness and the opposite of evil. Good, good. Yep. And so you see the, the, the righteous versus wicked contrast all through Proverbs, and you also see the wise versus fool contrast. And so what we saw is that the wise man is the righteous man, and he's righteous because of his wisdom, and the fool is the wicked because he's not internalized God's truth, and he has nothing to lead him in the right way. What else do we say about, about righteousness? Um, there's something we, we talked a little bit of time about how it relates to the law of Moses. Um, it's not directly connected. It's not simply repeating what's written in the law, but it's, it's not ignoring that either. It's built on that foundation, right? What else do we say about that? So the law of Moses gave some, some principles and then Proverbs fleshes that out. Yeah, good. Good, good. So Proverbs isn't merely content with you fulfilling the, the external requirements of the law. It's saying true righteousness goes beyond that into matters of, of character and person and really meeting the core and the essence of the law, which is what? Which is love. Love is the essence of the law. Love is the primary goal of the law, and I think that's what Proverbs is primarily aiming at. Horizontal relationships worked out in love. Um, that's what think righteousness, if you want to generalize and summarize it, the Proverbs is. So this week, we, we have a few more questions. We're still going to stay on this topic of, of righteousness, but we have to uh, answer a few questions now that arise, and that is, what about us New Testament believers? We said that Proverbs relies on and explains the law of Moses, but what about us? Uh, how do we relate to Proverbs? How do we relate to the law of Moses? Um, it's important because Proverbs is connected to the law of Moses. Um, also, can anyone even be righteous? That's a problem we have to work through. Who are the righteous? And is the answer different in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament? And these are questions that I have often when I work through the scriptures, and I'm sure you do as well. Um, so if you look at your outline, we're going to begin to consider this first question is, what is the function of the law? We really have to answer this. What, what is the function of the law? What is the purpose of the law? Or you could ask in another way, how should God's people relate to his law? Um, Proverbs seeks to apply the law, and so it's important that we understand the answer. How does the law work? What, what's the purpose of it? Um, and these are massive questions. I mean, you can read volumes on people answering this question. So this morning, we obviously can't 
say everything that can be said, but I want to sort of summarize it and, and give us something to, uh, to work with here. Um, so let me ask you, um, what, is the, what is the function of the law? Um, you can see in your outline, the, the, the first thing we're going to look at is, all right, well, what about the law of Moses in the Old Testament? What was the primary function of the law of Moses? What was the purpose of the law of Moses? Um, and there's a number of answers. There's not just one answer to this. And I think the reason is, is because there are multiple functions of the law. And that's really what I want to talk about this morning. That there's not just one function of the law. And I think once you realize God's law has multiple purposes, multiple functions, it answers a ton of questions. Um, and it really brings, brings clarity. So what do you think? Um, can you think of any passages that sort of tell us what the function of the law is, the Mosaic law? Yeah. I think there's, there's, like you mentioned, there's several different aspects. Of course, you've got the moral law, you've yep. got the ceremonial law, you've got the civil law, mm-hmm. and uh, all of those components wrapped in there. And a lot of times when we think of the law, or we talk about the law, we're thinking kind of the ceremonial sacrificial system, mm-hmm. which is just, a, that's just one aspect of it. But another part of the law that we don't often focus on is the everyday civil. I mean, you have a lot of civil cases, a lot of torts. Yep. I mean, in fact, that's what most of the law yep. is. You know, if this you're in this situation, this is what you do. If this crime is committed, this is the punishment. And I think one really interesting aspect of, of that part of the law is that it shows us how God, if he was the one in charge of designing, creating, and uh, being the... Uh, Judiciary over a society, how he would order that society. And in each one of those laws, it's very fascinating to see the different implications uh, with those. And you look at, you contrast that with a lot of the uh, the, the laws, uh, the law codes today, even, you know, the way that we have uh, our laws set up in our country versus how the law code was set up there. I mean, you see a very different picture of. Uh, the, the legal side of helping the poor. You see a very different picture of the legal side of capital punishment. There's so many different things. You get a real window into how God yep. desires society to be structured. This is fascinating. Yep. That's excellent. That's excellent. And it comes back to the fact that Israel is, is his kingdom. It was, it's the beginnings of his new creation. He's restoring creation, restoring his kingdom over the earth, and his law reflects his righteous character. He's the king. And then Israel was to be his representative. They were to work out yeah, his to, character and their nation. It was to separate Good. his yep. people. Yep. Yeah, That's another function. It had not yep. been done to any of the other nations uh, up to that time. And yep. So he had chosen them out and uh, you know, created this, uh, you know, Good. You know, it, it caused them to be separate. Very good. Excellent. Excellent. And both of those answer the uh, the first thing you can see there on your outline. But what was the, the function of the law of Moses? Well, the first thing is it regulated Israelite society. That's what it did. It regulated the society. And um, God, in free mercy, chose Israel to be his people. Not because they did anything to attract him. They, they were the least of the nations. And he mercifully chose them to reveal himself to them. It's a covenant with them. And to come and live in their midst. And so... Part of the law is to teach the people, how do you live with God living in your midst and not be consumed by his holiness? Teach them about clean and unclean and how do you relate to him and the the sacrifices and the temple. You need that. You have God living in your midst. So it was to regulate them. Um, It also uh, was there to separate them as a nation, as as, as this people that God has called 
It's to separate them from the other nations. That's why you have clean and unclean. That's why you have circumcision. That's why you have the food laws. All those were to make Israel separate from the nations because they were a people that belonged wholly to the Lord. Um, and then you also have civil laws, uh, like, like Chris was mentioning. It was to regulate. It was the supreme law of the land. We have the Constitution in America, and they have the Torah. And it's really an amazing thing that we read it, and we think there's a lot of commands, but actually, I mean, this is what was the law for the, for the nation. It's actually relatively, relatively small. It's brilliant, you know, for, of, of, of the Lord. So um, it was the governing law of the land. Um, so, so that's what one of the functions the Mosaic Law was. It was to regulate Israel's society because they were a nation. They were a political entity. They were also a religious entity with, with, with God living among them. Um, number two, um, the Law of Moses did not exist as a means of salvation. And uh, I'm sure all of you are aware of that, but I put it here just to protect us from ever even getting the notion that in the New Testament... We are somehow we, we are saved by grace. In the Old Testament, they're saved by law, and nothing could be more twisted or, or wrong conception of of, of the scriptures. Uh, Paul's point over and over again is that justification is by faith in the Old and New Testament. David, Abraham, justified by faith. Um, God didn't give His law to Israel so they could use it to earn salvation. Um, Old Testament's filled with promises of grace through faith, and the New Testament's full of commandments. So uh, they're, they're, you can't um, make them um, different from each other in that respect. Um, there was a different covenant and administration of things, of things in between the Testaments, but God's means of salvation has been the same throughout all history. Number three, the law of Moses existed to prepare for the coming. Christ. Um, insufficiency was built into the law of Moses. It was never meant to be permanent. It wasn't God's plan A that he really wanted to work, and then things just didn't work out. He says, I just got to settle for plan B now. He, it, it was meant to be insufficient. It was meant to be um, temporary. You can see Galatians 3.19 um, for that. <clears throat> but how? How did it prepare for the coming of Christ? Uh, and again, you can say a ton here. Uh, for sake of time, I'll just highlight a couple things. Uh, flip over to Romans chapter 3. We could go to Galatians for this. We could go to a number of places, but just go to here. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 20. One way it prepared um, Israel, it prepared for the coming of Christ, was by revealing sin. It's by revealing sin. It was one of the primary functions of the law, exposed sin. Was it to be used as a ladder for salvation? It was meant to expose sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified, declared righteous in his sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. It was one of the primary functions, purposes of the law, was to be a mirror of God's righteous standards that when the people looked at it, they realize they fail. Uh, that's the point. And so that when Christ came, they see, that, that, that's our only hope. That's our new And Paul so, uses the word tutor. He in Galatians, yep. Yeah, yep. it's our tutor. Yep, to bring us to Christ. Yep, excellent. And it's the exact same, same uh, 
same point there. And in other words, you can't be justified by the thing that exposes your sin, by the thing that condemns you. Um, it was temporary, and it was in order to point the people away from themselves, expose their sin problem. <clears throat> Next, it was uh, it prepared for the coming of Christ by its own insufficiency. Um, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul's defending his ministry here in, in these chapters, and he does it by explaining the new covenant, how the new covenant ministry Paul has is so far exceeds the old covenant, and really gives us insight into... Uh, into the difference between the two covenants. Um, don't have time to read it. You can skim through it, uh, verse 1 through verse 11. He starts unpacking sort of the differences between the two covenants, and he calls the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation. And the reason is not because there's anything wrong with the law of Moses. It's not, it's not like it was bad. Paul says it's holy. The law of Moses is holy and good and right. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with the law of Moses. But it's a ministry of death because, look at verse 6, it comes in letter, is what he says. It kills because it's in letter. And he talks about that in Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 2. Well, what does he mean by the letter? I think it simply means that the law came and it was simply external word. Uh, it was simply external word. It had no ability to change their hearts. It was written on tablets. It had no ability to affect the heart. It was external word. Um, it made demands, but it did not provide the heart necessary to keep the demands. It was letter, is how Paul describes it. And when God's holy law, whether it's in the Old Covenant or New Covenant, comes in contact with unregenerate flesh, it always produces death. Because the flesh always perverts it. It always either twists it into becoming a means for salvation, or it rebels against it in sin. Whenever God's law comes in contact with unregenerate flesh, it's just a letter, and it kills. But then Paul says, the spirit gives life. And that is why the new covenant is superior to the old. The old covenant Provided the commandments, it provided the law, the revelation, it did not provide the heart necessary um, to receive it. But the new covenant is superior because every member in the new covenant has a regenerate heart. Every member in the new covenant possesses the Holy Spirit so that when the law, God's word, comes in contact with them, it doesn't meet unregenerate flesh. It meets the spirit. And that's what Paul says, the spirit gives, gives life. That's the difference between the, the two covenants. Um, you've heard the poem, um, Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids man fly, and it gives him wings. That's the difference between the two covenants. The purpose of the old covenant, covenant was to condemn and reveal to the people their great need for a new covenant heart. And, and some of the Old Testament experienced this. I mean, you think of David, you think of Joshua and Caleb, they experienced the, the, this new heart, but they were the exception to the rule. Most in Israel um, didn't have it. Yeah, and then Ezekiel and Jeremiah states about having the heart. And they're, they're prophesying it. Yeah. yeah. And Jesus inaugurated it. Exactly what they're, what they're the prophesying. Yep. And I think in the New Testament, you know, the Pharisees kept bouncing off 
Jesus when he would say something because it, it was it was killing them. It's good. Yep. And they would just get angry yep. because he wasn't following their That's right. That's right. Yep. They just had the heart of flesh, the, the, the heart of stone, and yep. the unregenerate flesh, and it, it bounced off. So it's excellent. Um, so Moses prepares uh, for Christ by pointing them to Christ. Flip back to Romans chapter 10. I'll show you another passage here. Um, i move quickly to these, the, the, the second half is really what I want to emphasize in our, in our outline here. Romans chapter 10 verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You can translate it, Christ for righteousness is the aim, is the goal of the law of Moses for everyone who believes. Um, Everything in the law, from its shadows and its types to its commandments and its promises, everything prepared for Christ. Uh, the law of Moses revealed transgressions. It condemned, it revealed the people their need for a new covenant heart. It taught the people their inability to keep it, so that when Christ came, they would turn to him in faith. That's the point of the law of Moses, is to prepare for Christ. So one more thing before we move on from the law of Moses. We've seen that it's there to regulate Israel's society. It's not a means of salvation. And it was there to prepare for Christ by exposing sin, by exposing its insufficiency to create what it commands. Um, and then there's one more aspect to it that we need to hit on here. Uh, because it's true that not everybody in the Old Testament was unregenerate. Again, we have Joshua and Caleb. We have David. We have Samuel. We have these people who genuinely love the law of the Lord. We have Psalm 119 where it's just saying how I love your law. I love your commandments. I love to obey you. I want to follow you. Um, the law for them wasn't a means of salvation. And they didn't rebel against it either. Um, they were convicted by it as sinners and they turned to the Lord for mercy. And that brings us to the fourth point here. The law then existed for them as a roadmap for faithful um, it wasn't legalistic, but it was the means to express their faith. It was the way that they would work out. I trust the Lord. I love the Lord. And this is how I want to live. This is how God has called us to live. And yeah, we're going to talk about this in a little bit more in just a minute. Um, let's move on to the this next point in your outline. So that's the, the Mosaic law. But, but what about the New Testament now? How does the law... For the law of Moses, in particular, function in the New Testament. Um, to answer this, again, we can say a lot. I'm just going to say two things. First thing is that the law of Moses is not binding on believers, as you are well aware. Um, we just talked about how the law of Moses was temporary, existed to regulate and separate Israel, to become a member of God's people in the Old Covenant, you had to submit to the law of Moses. There wasn't salvation outside of Israel. If you wanted salvation, if you wanted membership of the people of God, you had to become a Jew. That's how it was. There wasn't salvation anywhere else. It was through Israel, through the Mosaic Covenant. But at the coming of Christ, the Mosaic Covenant is no longer the central organizing principle. In other words, entrance into God's people... Enjoying forgiveness of sins, the promises, justification, the Holy Spirit, all these things comes now not by becoming a Jew, but by faith in Christ. For Jew and Gentile. 
Jesus now is the center of the covenant. Jesus now is the way, the way we become members of God's family. He's the new Israel. Connection to him is connection to God's people. And this is the primary issue in Acts. What do we do with these Gentiles? Don't they have to become Jews? Circumcised in order to enjoy the benefits of of salvation. Um, Ephesians 2 and 3 talks about the Jew and Gentile made part of one new man in Christ. Not through the Mosaic regulations anymore. They're temporary. And so requiring Mosaic regulations on people is to ignore the significance of where we are in salvation history. Christ has come now. He is the center. He's what everything was pointing to. He is the center of the covenant now. No longer the law of Moses. So now, what do we do with the Old Testament? What do we do with the book of Proverbs? What do we do with the law of Moses? Um, What about the Ten Commandments? That's part of the law of Moses. How, How do we relate to that? I thought, so we're not in the law of Moses, right? What brings us to the second point? is that God's moral law remains. Yes, we're not under the law of Moses any longer, but that doesn't mean we're not under law at all. Um, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I think this is one of the clearest places that Paul uh, explains this. Um, Paul's using himself as an example in this chapter to the, to the Corinthians, and uh, he talks about how he... Uh, he does everything to win people for Christ. Whether it's to the Jews, he becomes like Jews. Whether it's to Gentiles, he becomes like Gentiles. But he gives us some insight into the law here. Look at verse 20. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20. It says, To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. That's the law of Moses. But look at what's in parentheses. Though not being myself under the law. Paul recognizes he is not under the constraints of the law of Moses. He, yeah, he'll go eat kosher food when he's with the Jews so he doesn't offend them so he can reach them with the gospel. But he's not required and bound by the law of Moses. But look what he says next in verse 21. To those outside the law, I became one as outside the law. And then if he just stopped there, you would think, oh, so, so Paul's lawless. He doesn't He doesn't have the law. He can just live however his flesh craves. But look what he says. Not being outside the law of God. I'm not saying that I don't have any law over me. I'm not saying that I I am a lawless person. I just go live with the Gentiles and partake whatever they do. I'm not saying that I'm not under the law at all. But what? Under the law of Christ. Believers are not under the law of Moses. But that doesn't mean we are lawless. We're under the law. Christ. That's what Paul tells us. God rules his people now through Christ. Believers are free from Moses, but that doesn't mean we're free from any law and can just live however we want. We're under God's laws that's expressed in Christ now. So you can think of it in this way. Christ is like a filter through which the law of Moses is, is poured. And everything in the law of Moses that was preparatory, that pointed to Christ, was preparing people for Christ. The sacrifices, circumcision, food law, whatever it is, it's fulfilled in Christ and it doesn't remain. But God's moral law, his principles that are, that are, that are true from beginning before creation all the way to now, they come through the filter. And that is what remains for us. Um, 
That's how come we can say the Mosaic law is no longer binding on us, and yet many of its commandments are still applicable for us. The book of Proverbs is super relevant for our lives. Um, the Ten Commandments. We do not observe the Fourth Commandment. I'm pretty sure every one of you cooked yesterday, and some of you went to work. We're, we're, we're not under the, the Sabbath law. And yet every other commandment of the Ten Commandments applies to us, because they're expression of God's eternal moral law for us. So Christ is, think of him as, as a filter. Don't ignore the Old Testament. Don't ignore the Ten Commandments. Don't ignore the book of Proverbs. Many of its commandments and principles and rules are applicable to us and are repeated in the New Testament and are instructive. So I emphasize this because you can fall on two extremes. You can either say, Mosaic law and principles and regulations are still binding on us, or you can say, hey, I'm free from the law. I can do whatever I, I, I want. But as New Covenant believers, we're, we're under the law of Christ, is what Paul says. Um, and there's many things we can say about the law of Christ. Um, James refers to it as a law of liberty. Like, uh, like Mark was saying, you shall know the truth, the truth shall set you free. Freedom in the Bible is not the ability to do whatever your sinful flesh craves. Sin is slavery. Um, true freedom is the ability to genuinely desire and do what God can. That's why it's a law of liberty, because now it's a law that comes in contact with not unregenerate flesh, but the Spirit indwelling us in the new covenant. You know, Paul says we're going to be slaves to, to something. Yeah. So let's be slaves to Christ. That's right. That's right. Either of sin, which leads to um, uh, death, or, or, or uh, righteousness, which leads to death. Yeah. So, yep. Yep. That's right. Um, so it's a, it, the, the law of Christ is a law of freedom. It's a law of liberty. James also calls it the royal law. And he does it by appealing to what? Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the core of the law of Christ. You can see it in Galatians 6.1. Paul talks about fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens in love. The core of this law is love, just like the, just like the Old Testament. So that's the function between the law and the Old and New Testament. A lot we could say, um, a lot more we could say, but let me just simplify it really quick for you. Boil everything we've said now down into just two things you can walk away holding and saying, okay, this is how the law functions, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. Number one, God's law exists to expose sin and lead to Christ. It exposes our rebellion, it exposes our failure, and then it calls us to look to Christ as our substitute, and also to give us his spirit. Number two, God's law exists to direct the lives of believers. John Piper said that God's law was never meant to be a ladder, whereby we, we turn it up and use it to climb up to God, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. Rather, he said God's law is the train track. It's originally train tracks. It's meant to be the, the guide rails for our life on which we run empowered by the Holy Spirit. That is the function of God's law, Old Testament and New Testament. Um, Old Testament saints needed and loved God's law, and New Testament saints need and love God's law. We've already seen in Proverbs the person who truly loves and, and fears the Lord. What do they do? They 
earnestly try to put God's law into practice. They earnestly try to obey Him because they want to earn anything, but because they trust Him. They fear Him. They believe what He's promised and what He's threatened. Piper says, the faith that justifies inevitably sanctifies. Justifying faith isn't a one-time thing. I believed in them and I'm done. But it's faith that's active throughout your whole life, trusting. And what does true faith do? It works itself out in obedience. I believe. Therefore, I'm going to obey. Not perfectly, but it's the desire and the direction of following the Lord. That's what we are dealing with in the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs exists for Old Testament and New Testament believers as the pathway in which to walk and live out our faith, love, and fear of Christ. So that's the two main functions of the law in Old Testament and New Testament, to expose sin, lead to Christ, and to direct believers in their obedience to God's commandments. So before I end, I want to bring us back to our original topic of righteousness. Um, In light of all that we have said, are there any righteous? Is anyone righteous? If you've been tracking with what you're saying, you're going to say no and yes. It depends, right? It depends on what sense you're talking. It depends on what function of the law you're talking about. If you're talking in the sense of the first function of the law, which is to what? To expose sin and to lead to Christ, there's none righteous. Uh, Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous, no, not one. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. It's because the law demands absolute perfection. If you rely on works of law, you're under a curse because you cannot keep the law perfectly. Galatians 3.10. And that's where everyone must begin. This is the starting point. I've broken God's law. I've not kept it perfectly. I've rebelled against Him. There's no way for me to earn salvation on my own. It exposes us as sinners in need of a Savior. That's the first function of the law. The law exposes sin. And so you can't be declared righteous by what exposes your sin. There's none righteous in that sense. But in the sense of the second function of the law, to do what? To guide and direct the lives of believers, there are righteous people. In fact, the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, talk about the righteous many times. He was righteous. Job was a man righteous, blameless. Noah was Righteous. Abraham walked blamelessly. Zechariah in Luke 1 was a man righteous and blameless and followed all the law of the Lord, it says. Well, what do you do with that? Well, obviously, it's not talking about the first function of the law to expose and that he was perfect. It means he was what? He was a man of faith who, not perfectly, but trusted, worked it out, obeyed him, and sought to obey his law. In that sense, there are righteous people. He's walking humbly. That's right. That's right. Yep. And, uh, and in the New Testament, even commands us as believers to be what? To be righteous. To do righteous works. Paul commands it in almost every letter. Why? Because that's how you express your faith. That's what it means to be a believer. That's what it looks like to trust and fear the Lord. So... So how should this impact the way we read and study the book of Proverbs? 
I just want to say that the law should direct us. Um, we're going to carry these two functions of the law through our study of Proverbs. First thing we're going to do is look, how does Proverbs expose us? How does it reveal sin in our lives? And it does this for unbelievers and it does it for believers. Uh, we've seen it comes like a, like a knife. It comes like a light and just reveals sin to us. And it's not comfortable. Uh, no one likes going to the surgeon and getting the, the incision and the knife being put in. And yet we still do it. Why? Because we need it. We're desperate. If we don't do it, we're going to die. And we need the conviction. We need the explosion of our sin to lead us to Christ. And the second thing Proverbs does is it leads us, it guides us, it shows us the roadmap for righteous living. So next week, we're going to um, finish up this topic of, of righteousness. And we're going to ask a couple uh, final questions. The first thing is, who are the righteous? We've talked about it a little bit already, but I want to go through the book of Proverbs. And what are the characteristics of a truly righteous person? What do they look like? What defines them? How can that uh, help us and direct us? And then we're going to ask a big question is, is righteousness, is a righteous works essential for the Christian life, or are they just icing on the cake? Is it important that we do righteousness? Or to put it another way, will there be a judgment one day according to works? Will our works play any role in God's final judgment on the final day? Um, maybe. So you'd be cheering on that, thinking about that. And we're going to come back in and talk about it. So... Um, any questions, comments, Snyder remarks, thoughts? <clears throat> yes. Spirit's work and 
yeah, we, we still, even in our good works, they're still not perfect, but yet they're the fruit of the Spirit working. And so God is not going to call the fruit of the Spirit filthy, filthy rags. So in one sense, yeah, they're, they're, everything we have, if we rely on it, in other words, as the basis, it's polluted. It's a garment. Uh, it's, it's nothing that's going to even make us acceptable. In fact, it will condemn us. And then Paul said yeah. that uh, our, you know, it's not in vain. Yep. That we do work. That's right. We do uh, righteous deeds. That's excellent. So yeah. They're not in vain. It's not in vain. And I, it, Michael, next week, is sort of to show they're essential. You have to have them. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yep. That's why we are saved, is to do these good works. And they are pleasing. And God talks about it. It's a fragrant aroma. It's sweet to Him because it's the working of His Spirit. So um, you got to keep these two senses in, in mind all the time. That's excellent. Jesus. Thank you. Yeah. That's been a way to think of it that's been helpful for me is law, both New and Old Testament, um, are it's a way to for God to reveal Himself and show us what He is like. And sin is is just not being morally conformed to what God is like. It's it's being unlike God, mm-hmm. contrary to God. And so it is the we are made in God's image. We're made to function. Morally, the way he functions, and it's uh, maybe use an analogy. It's kind of like the fish. If if the fish is not in the water, so if the water is the, is the water, <laughs> the fish is made to function in a certain realm. Yeah. If you try to function a different way, it doesn't work. You die. And uh, it's good. so it's it does confine, but at the same time, it, it frees. Yeah. Good. Yep, it's excellent. excellent. So what, as believers, we are put back into the way we should be living. Right? We're put back in the water through the Spirit. So that's excellent. Very good. Um, it is it is time um, to go. Uh, let me just encourage you men, if you want to come out, would love to have you. If you don't even read the chapter, come on out. And we'll still discuss. We have a good conversation very edifying, very encouraging. Bring someone else, if you know of a, of a guy who you think would benefit, bring him out, and we're going to be on chapter 10. Really excited. Um, Owen's excellent and applying a lot of this kind of stuff to our hearts. So, it's good. Alrighty, let me pray and uh, we'll go.